that's the thing, you know, that, that he's literally doing, you know, what you're doing there with a very, you know, and Way especially, he's got a very similar story to you, hasn't he? It's, uh, yeah, what a, what a coincidence, as, uh, as James said. Definitely. But um, it's the top of the hour. Um, our next guest is with us, because uh, joining us on the charity stream now is Right Room filmmaker Chris Borneo. Chris, thanks for uh, joining us for, uh, for this day of uh, chat. Thank you for having me on, and it's Borne. Uh, I know I have a very strange name. Uh, no, I haven't officially done the genealogy, but supposedly my family has French Creole heritage, so that's why it's such an odd <laughs> name. <laughs> oh, no, not an odd name at all, just um, an odd pronunciation by me. I do apologize for that, but interesting no uh, where names come from and stuff. But um, obviously, you know, you've worked on, um, um, obviously, in more recent times, it's uh, got a lot of uh, press, and uh, you worked on the fantastic documentary Lady Wrestler, the untold story of African-American women in the ring. Um, but before we get there, Chris, I wanted to ask, um, how did you become involved in filmmaking in the first place? Yeah, so most of my career has been in print journalism, but I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And uh, so I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. I went to Ohio State University and my degree is actually in English because I, I kind of felt like my pathway into filmmaking would be through writing. Like I just always figured I would write books that would be turned into movies. You know, I guess I saw myself as sort of like Michael Crichton or something. And um, mm. but uh, so the opportunity. So I made a couple of short films before I made the documentary. But um, when I had interviewed Ethel Johnson, who is one of the main um, you know, people that I interviewed for the documentary, uh, one of the, the women who integrated pro wrestling back in the 50s. I just, it was like one of those stories that kind of just jumped out at me and said, this story is cinematic. I always say it didn't take Orson Welles to realize this, this these women's stories were something that, you know, a lot of people would be interested in. And what fascinated me about the story was that I grew up in the city where these women lived and where their, um, you know, their promoter, Billy Wolf, had set up his women's wrestling organization. And I never heard about it until a mutual friend um, recommended that I do a, um, a story about it for the local newspaper. So uh, it just sort of like my journalism, writing and um, filmmaking ambitions sort of like all came together in this one project, the documentary Lady Wrestler. Yeah, definitely. Um, was uh, wrestling something you were a fan of or was it more just the stories of, of these ladies that um, inspired you? You know, I was a casual wrestling fan when I was a kid. Like, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So in the early 80s, uh, I spent a lot of time over my grandparents, and they they were one of the early adopters of cable television. So I would watch um, the WWF on WTBS, you know, like a basic cable uh, yeah. network. So I was a fan of Rowdy Roddy Piper, whom I got to interview for the documentary. Um, you know, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, that whole that whole era of wrestling but i sort of outgrew it and you know by the time i got to high school i you know wasn't really that into wrestling so i had sort of lost touch with wrestling until this uh, friend of mine named terry anderson who works in public relations suggested hey why don't you interview this really interesting lady um she's some kind of wrestler or bodybuilder and um so that kind of uh that kind of sparked sort of my um reintroduction to the to the wrestling industry all right because um obviously these are you know incredible people that you was it hard to track them down in terms of um putting the documentaries together i know you said you were um you know in a similar area to ethel ethel johnson was it was it hard yeah. to track them down 
Well, no, what's interesting is this is not a story that I sought out. It's a story that fell in my lap, which, of course, every documentary filmmaker and every <laughs> journalist wishes would happen all the time. So I wasn't, you know, my my ambition as a filmmaker was to always to tell like original creative stories, like narrative films that came out of my imagination. I actually had no interest in becoming a documentary filmmaker until I came across this story. So when Terry Anderson um, said he would introduce me to Ethel Johnson, um, you know, she was, so by the time I met Ethel, she was in her seventies. She had been retired because, um, you know, as the documentary chronicles, her older sister Babs Wingo was actually the first a uh, black woman to integrate pro wrestling in the 50s. And the, the family name is Wingo, but, um, you know, Ethel took a, a ring name so that, you know, all the fans wouldn't necessarily know they were sisters. And their younger sister, Marva Scott, also got in uh, into the industry. Uh, so just by interviewing Ethel, um, I think Ethel, I, for, I forget if, if it was Ethel or, or someone else, but someone else um, referred me to Ethel Brown who was a um, Caucasian American woman who uh, is, you know, was one of Ethel's peers and they were friends and they, they trained together. And then, um, so after I wrote this story for the local newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch, um, I, 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 I come across um, through my research, the names of other black women wrestlers who were, the, you know, the same generation as Ethel. And one of them was named Ramona Isbell, who I, who I also got to interview with the documentary. And the way I came across her was that I had misspelled her name as instead of Isbel, I had put it as Israel, like the country. And her daughter, oh, Joan, who I've come to be friends with, um, called the newspaper and very, very graciously and politely said, hey, just so you know, you misspelled my mother's name. And I said, oh, you know, thank you for bringing that to my attention. By the way, I'm starting work on this documentary. Do you think your mother would be interested in uh, speaking with me? And then um, there was another one, another um, one of the, the famous white women wrestlers of the day, Penny Banner, I actually interviewed for the uh, the newspaper article. But by the time I had sort of finished up the documentary, she had passed away. So it was sort of just through word of mouth. It wasn't like, uh, you know, a, a big detailed um, search to track these women down. It was just through word of mouth and through referrals that I got in touch with them. So I was I was very, very lucky in that regard. Because it's an absolutely brilliant story. Obviously, you know, as a guy living in the UK, I had no idea about anything. So I think I buried the lead a bit for people who are unaware. It is, um, you know, boiled down to its essentials. It's about um, yeah. female wrestlers in the 1950s, isn't it? African-American female wrestlers in the 50s. Yeah, so the story begins with a man named Billy Wolf, a white man, a former wrestler who's from Missouri here in the United States. I never did find out in my research how Billy Wolf ended up migrating to Ohio but he, he chose Columbus, Ohio as his base of operations. And my hunch is that because Columbus is centrally located in the nation, it's in the Midwest, and it's like within a day's drive of like something like 70 to 80% of the country. So, you know, back in the 30s when he was starting his women's wrestling organization, this is before the interstate highway system and before plane travel was really common. So I, 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 my guess is that he just chose a centrally located location. And also there was another promoter named Al Haft, who was a big, uh, big kahuna, so to speak, in the National Wrestling Alliance. So I'm sure that had something to do with it as well, because Billy teamed up with uh, Al to promote uh, his women's wrestling business. So Billy, although Billy Wolf, as any wrestling fan of, you know, any fan of vintage wrestling 
um, is familiar with. Billy Wolf was a very, very complicated man. He was a womanizer. Um, you know, a lot of people say that he was kind of underhanded in the way he did business, that he underpaid the women and then would, you know, challenge them to like card games and then take their their winnings from, I mean, take their um, earnings from them. Um, and he groomed his first wife, Mildred Burke, into being the um, first women's world wrestling champion. So Billy and Mildred started recruiting other women to get into the wrestling business because, you know, as you can imagine, back in the 30s, it's not like there were women wrestlers just walking around every street corner, especially in Columbus, Ohio, of all places. No. So Billy Wolf, although he had all these character flaws and was somewhat of a sexist, he saw the value in women's wrestling and making money and thought it you know, was something that could be turned into a legitimate enterprise because before he really got involved, it was looked at as like something that was like limited to circus sideshows. Like, ooh, look at this freakishly power, powerful woman who can mm -hmm. get in the ring and take on, you know, challenge men to come in, come in the ring, which, is, which Mildred did several times before she went uh, pro. So anyway, Billy Wolf was inspired by Jackie Robinson and what, how Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball uh, brought a lot of attention and buzz to the, uh, to, you know, to the industry, to, to, to baseball. So Billy thought he could do the same thing with wrestling by recruiting black women. So he recruited uh, uh, Babs Wingo was the first woman who uh, to, in to integrate pro wrestling at Billy Wolf's uh, you know, invitation. And then Babs recruited Ethel and, you know, both Ethel and um, Babs recruited their younger uh, sister, Marva. And then there was another woman who came along at the same time named Kathleen Wembley. And she's she's still alive and well. Ethel passed away in 2018 and, and Babs and Marva passed away in 2003. But um, Kathleen Wembley, I didn't get to interview for the documentary, but um, I've since spoken to her and um, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to interview her at some point, either for like maybe a follow up uh I hate to say sequel, but a follow-up to Lady Wrestler, or even yeah. if it was just for like a you know a newspaper or a magazine article. So there were there were dozens of women, dozens of black women that Billy Wolf recruited, and um, uh, uh, one of the one of the uh, books that was really really helpful in my research was um, Queen of the Ring by a journalist named uh, Jeff Lean. That's a biography of Mildred Burke, and he really goes into the history of. Uh, Billy Wolf and Mildred and how they created this, what he calls like a women's wrestling factory. They developed this uh, formula called sex muscles and diamonds to, to train women wrestlers. And, you know, the sex was sex appeal. The women had to sort of look like Hollywood starlets in, in you know, their, their mm. wrestling leotards. Uh, diamonds was Hollywood glamor. And then um, muscle was, you know, they had to have real athletic ability. They had to know the holds. They had to know how to fall. They had to sort of be like gymnasts you know, where they, they knew tumbling techniques. You couldn't just like get up there and look pretty and fake your way through it. You really had to be a real athlete. So, um, yeah, so, and also uh, Jeff Lean referred me to the University of Notre Dame, which is about a five hour drive from Columbus. So I made a couple of trips there because the University of Notre Dame has a huge wrestling archive. There was a wrestling promoter named Jack Pfeffer, whom I always refer to as an organized pack rat because he saved everything and there were just, bankers boxes and bankers boxes worth of newspaper clippings and mm. photos of Ethel and her sisters and the other women. And that was really a treasure trove of information. I mean, and some of, some of this stuff had been kind of sitting dormant for years and years. And it was, you know, almost like being an archeologist opening up all these old boxes of, uh, you know, 
you know, lore from the wrestling industry. That that was that was a really interesting part of the research. Oh, I can imagine because I can't imagine. Um, you know, that must have been brilliant for a documentary maker finding, like, say, this treasure trove of a. Uh, of stuff because i imagine obviously you know we're going back um, a long time here and i can't imagine there was um, any uh, all footage of, of you know them actually in the ring and stuff yeah i managed to track down some uh footage of the three sisters uh babs ethel and marva in the ring and a lot of times um uh billy wolf did not tell the um the audience, I mean, the promoters of their their matches didn't tell the audience that they were sisters because they didn't want the audience thinking, oh, they're going to go easy on each other because they're sisters. Mm. So I, I was able to uh, track down a short clip of the three sisters in the ring, your grainy black and white footage. No, it's fantastic, though, that you were even the small amount of footage. It was it definitely made, um, you know, the documentary work better. Um, what I found interesting about it is obviously, you know, these women are rightly, you know, lauded as, you know, pioneers and, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, pushing things forward. But they weren't actually doing it for that reason, were they? they? You know, obviously, you know, they were just they were simply trying to make a living. And it just it, it obviously, you know, to our modern day brains, it seemed wild that they were uh, in the 50s thinking oh, the, the best way to make a living is by being a wrestler. Yeah, because back then, I mean, and even now, you know, it's not like there are a whole lot of you know, young girls who think, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a wrestler. It was no. just something that, you know, an opportunity that came, you know, came along, you know, Babs had no way of anticipating that, oh, some promoter is going to settle in my hometown and recruit me to be a wrestler. But when Babs got into the business, um, you know, and um, Marva Scott's daughter, Kim Martin, talks about this, Ethel and Marva, you know, looked at their older sister and said, hey, she's traveling around the world. She's getting to do all these glamorous things. You know, I, I want to get into the business, too. And as Jeff Lean says in the documentary, a lot of these women were single mothers or, you know, maybe they were like working as in some menial job, like as a waitress or a seamstress before they got into wrestling. So basically they had nothing to lose. But but you're right. It wasn't like they aspired to be a wrestler the way you you, you are. A, women are able to, you know, look at some famous wrestler and say oh yeah i want to be like her back then they had no no one to compare themselves to no one you know no no idols to look up to and say oh i want to be like, like her when i grow up so it was yeah it was just something that a lot of the women stumbled stumbled into and thought okay this will be better than you know waiting tables or working as a cashier in a you know five and dime store mm-hmm. so for a lot of the women yeah it wasn't something that they grew up aspiring to because it didn't exist when they were growing up. And, and I should add, a lot of the women who got in were really young. Babs, Marva, and um, Ethel were like teenagers when they got into the business. Yeah, I think um, one of them says they started training when they were 12 years old, which is yeah, insane Ethel to think that. nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I suppose, yeah, that, that's the thing, is as well as obviously, you know, uh, heavily dominated by male sport, obviously... This is uh, the 1950s in America, and just all these obstacles they had to come. It's, it just blows your mind, doesn't it, when you hear these stories and just all the things. But the way they they tell them, they they you know they they seem to take it in their stride. Yeah, and you know, um, also when I was doing research for the initial um, uh, newspaper article I wrote for the local uh, dispatch newspaper, I came across the documentary Lipstick and Dynamite, which is an excellent also an excellent documentary um, about that era, but 
that documentary only um, interviewed white women, which is you know, kind of understandable because this here you have the fabulous moolah and other women, other white women like her, who you know, all respect to them and all respect to um, the lady who made that documentary, *Sticking Dynamite*. But though, although those, although those women in the industry had to deal with sexism, just imagine having to deal with the double whammy of sexism and racism. Racism. So not only is there a stigma against women being athletes and women being wrestlers, because re wrestling is not even looked at somewhat not now and even certainly back then was not looked at as a legitimate sport so first you have that stigma then you have the stigma of being a woman in an uh industry that's not being considered i mean considered legitimate then you have the stigma of a woman wearing skimpy outfits you know in front of uh crowds which there were some cities even like new york and California, states like california that banned women's wrestling because they considered it against standards of public decency then you have the added stigma of being an African-American. And when you go into certain places in the country, mostly in the South, you can't even walk in the front door of a, of a roadside uh, you know, burger stand. You have to go in the back door to get your food or you can't stay at a hotel because hotels were segregated. So you have to find a rooming house where you know an African-American uh, business owner uh, will let you stay there because you can't stay at the, uh, you know, the regular hotel and then you have to worry about when you're dri driving through some of these places the ku klux klan or other white supremacist terrorist organizations might run you out of town in the documentary ethel talks about how i think it was tuscaloosa alabama where a group called the white citizens council which was a form of the ku klux klan uh, uh threatened to hang her if she went on you know lyn lynching lynch her so you have this whole extra layer of stress and um, discrimination that the white women, although they, although they certainly faced obstacles, didn't have nearly as many obstacles as the black women. And yes, these these women had to be really strong to not just after the first, you know, match where they were where their lives were threatened or, you know, where they were treated where they had to, were subjected to Jim Crow segregation, just quit and say, forget it, I'm going back to Columbus. You know, because Columbus even back. Even back then, Columbus was in the north, but even Columbus was segregated. I mean, there were, you know, restricted deeds on housing where they wouldn't sell to black families. So this was really an era where not a lot of African-Americans were having opportunities, let alone traveling all over the world and being celebrated like heroes. So these women really are amazing in what they accomplished back then. No, definitely, yeah, because Ethel even tells a story, doesn't she, where, um, you know, she would walk down the street and she'd have to get off the sidewalk if if a white person was walking towards her. But something I did want to ask you, because obviously, um, as being someone based in the UK, I was unfamiliar with the um, um, was it the mm -hmm. Jim Crow? What 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 yes. what was that? Um, if you'd like to explain that to our, our listeners. So Jim Crow was a series. It was sort of like the American version of South African apartheid. So after slavery ended, you know, in eighteen sixty the 1860s, um, the South pushed back on having to free their slaves by implementing all these laws that would restrict African-Americans from having full citizenship. So Jim Crow was, Jim Crow is a catch-all term for these uh, restrictive laws that kept African-Americans from having 
full citizenship, as I said. So it could be anything from poll taxes or would you, you know, when an African-American would show up to vote, they would, you know, say something like, okay, here's this jar of jelly beans. In order for you to vote, you have to guess how many jelly beans are in this jar. And of course, wow. no matter what number you said, even if it was completely accurate, not that they had counted them, <laughs> they would say, sorry, mm -hmm. you know, you don't get to vote today. And it was something that petty all the way to lynchings. So, you know, groups like the terrorist groups, like the Ku Klux Klan, burning crosses in black families' yards to terrorize them and quote unquote, keep them in their place or lynching black men because like in the case, the famous case of Emmett Till, a white woman had accused him of like flirting with her, which turned out to be completely false. Mm. Uh, so it was Jim Crow is, is was a series of laws that uh, kept African-Americans repressed until the civil rights movement began in the 50s with Martin Luther King and with Rosa Parks famously refusing to sit at the back of a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, to put that, put that everything what you've said into context, and these women are wrestling, you know, around this time period, and it just blows your mind yeah. all the things they had to put up with. Am I right in saying, obviously, they went to Australia and they wrestled around the world and stuff? But were they not experience? Were they experiencing this around the world, or just mainly in the USA? Well, I think when they went to other countries, they were they. It wasn't the exact same. It wasn't like legalized dis discrimination the way it was in in the United States mm. South. But Ramona Isbell talks about in the documentary how she was in Sydney, Australia one time and, she, you know, she had some time to kill before a match. So she went to a shopping mall and was looking at a dress and the store clerk said, hey, I'd rather you not touch that. It's just mm. like assuming because Ramona is a black woman that she either doesn't have any money or she's she's going to steal the dress or by touching the dress, Ramona is gonna somehow contaminate the fabric or something. Mm -hmm. And then Ethel talks about how um, she would go to Cuba. She would wrestle in Cuba. She had a ring name in Latin America, Rita Valdez. And she talks about how in Cuba, it wasn't the legalized uh, segregation that you had in the United States, but it was still people were de facto segregated along color lines. So you would see you know, black people in menial jobs, like working as janitors and maids and, you know, light skinned or white passing people would be in professional jobs. So whereas it wasn't the outright blatant discrimination or segregation in other countries, it was more um, covert uh, discrimination where it was like, there may not be a law that says you have to sit at the back of the bus, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to treat you as if you're fully human unfortunately yep. i know it's disgraceful but um because obviously yeah. um was it ethel that talks about she had had to leave the business because she was uh being because she had to perform twice didn't she each night um once for the white audience and then for the black audiences later and i think that was um, a similar story as well for um for motown artists when they were on tour wasn't it yeah, yeah. So Ethel didn't end up leaving the business itself because of that, but she talks about a match where she she and another African American female wrestler took a stand where they just got tired of, um, like you said, because these venues, especially in the South, were segregated, they wouldn't let wrestling fans of different races co-mingle. So they'd have one show for the white audience and then a, you know, another show for the black audiences. And sometimes they would maybe have the white audience on the you know, the, the floor and the black 
blacks were relegated to the balcony. But most most of the time, it was just complete segregation where whites and blacks weren't allowed in the venue at the same time. So Ethel said she and this other African-American female wrestler said, you know, we're tired of this. And they just left without wrestling, you know, gave up the money. You know, they weren't paid for their time or anything driving down to this venue or anything, which, of course, is not a stand she wanted to take, as she said. But it was necessary in order for promoters to see, look, if you don't let our fans in together, we're, we're not going to we're not going to wrestle. And like you mm -hmm. said, it was similar for the Motown artists where they would go on these reviews where you'd have, you know, the Supremes and Smokey Robinson and uh, the Marvelettes and whoever and the Temptations all on this, you know, package tour. But they would have to the same thing. They would the, the white they do one show for white audiences or maybe if if the audience was integrated, the blacks were way up in the balcony and the whites, you know, had the prime seats on the floor. So, yeah, it was it was the same thing for African-Americans, whether they were athletes, entertainers or whatever industry they happen to be in. What for you was the most eye-opening thing when you were making the documentary through compiling the interviews and doing the research? It was really a couple of different eye-opening things. First of all, as I, as I mentioned before, it was really eye-opening that this really amazing piece of Black history happened right under my nose in my hometown where I was born and raised and have lived my entire life, and I never, and I never learned about it. I didn't learn about it in school. No, I, I, my first couple of uh, journalism jobs were at black newspapers and no one at the, these African-American newspapers even mentioned, oh, you know, there used to be these women back in the 50s that were really famous. And I would go through the photo archives sometimes looking for photos. There weren't even any photos of these women. So that that was really shocking and really disappointing to me that these women hadn't gotten any kind of recognition. Mm. Second of all. The, the, that these women, a lot of these women like Ethel had families. I mean, you think the life of a wrestler would be, that's not conducive to having a family. And Ethel talks yeah. about how she kept her family life separate. Her daughters didn't even know she was a wrestler. Her daughter, Shelly, tells a story where she found out her mom was a wrestler by seeing her mom on, on TV one time. I mean, just imagine that. Yeah. Seeing your mom you know, turning <laughs> on the TV and seeing your mom in a wrestling match. I mean, how mind-blowing would that be? And then the third thing that really blew my mind is that, as I mentioned, I had sort of lost touch with wrestling by the time I made this documentary. And when I finished up um, like a version of, of uh, almost the final version of the documentary back in 2017, I realized I had never actually been to a wrestling match in person. So I was like, I should go actually see what I just made an entire movie about with my own mm. two eyes. So I went to this event called uh, WrestleCon in Orlando, Florida, which is a big uh, independent wrestling match. And they had a women's wrestling tournament. And I interviewed some of the men. Um, I didn't include this in the documentary, but I interviewed some of the fans outside of the venue. And I asked, I asked these men, I said, why are you into women's wrestling? What possible um, interest would women's wrestling hold for you? And these men were just so passionate and enthusiastic, like, oh, these women are great and um, they're really underrated and they they deserve to be celebrated like champions. Some of them are better than male wrestlers. And during the, mm -hmm. the matches, a lot of the, the male fans would like run up to the women wrestlers after their matches and like want to take selfies with them and high five them. And I just thought, I don't know any other sport. I can't see, I can't env envision um, a stadium full of American football fans, men, you know, cheering on a women's American football team. That just would not happen. 
I can't imagine a baseball stadium full of men cheering on women playing baseball. Not even the Women's Basketball League that we have here in America, uh, the WNBA, has the kind of passionate following among uh, men that women's wrestling does. So I think that's that's something that's male wrestling fans, I don't think label themselves as feminists. They would never say, oh, I'm a feminist. That's why I support mm. women's wrestling. They just sort of have this egalitarian mindset that if you can wrestle and put on a good show, I don't really care what your gender is. And I think that's something that's not really um, emphasized very much. Do you think... Um... Ethel Johnson and everybody else, did they uh, watch any sort of like modern wrestling? And obviously, you know, women's wrestling has come, you know, there's still a lot of issues with it. But it has, as you just noted there, it's come a long way. Were they aware of sort of like, you know, wrestling these days? Or was that something they'd left behind in the past? Yeah, that's something they left behind. And toward the toward the end of the documentary, they talk about that. Like Ramona says, you know, I don't I don't know if there are any well-known African-Americans in the business now. She's like, I don't I don't watch it. It's just basically like, uh, you know, it's basically like T and she didn't use the term TNA, but, you know, that's what she was saying, mm. basically. <laughs> basically, like, you know, women are put up there just for, for flash is what her perception of it was. And Ethel was very, very vocal and blunt in saying, you know, the wrestling industry now is nothing like how it used to be when I was in the industry. She was like, you know, it's all show. It's like basically when you're was watching a wrestling match or watching a movie, because she feels it's even more scripted now than when she was in the business. And right. the women of her generation really had to be real athletes. She talked about her training regimen where she would spend three hours a day in the gym and it was all manual. You didn't have any, um, you know, any specialized equipment or steroids or whatever to help you, you know, excel in the industry. So they, their, their opinion of the modern industry, at least back in the, mid 2000s and the the teens when i was interviewing them they were they were not they were not um very enthusiastic about the contemporary wrestling industry yeah because obviously um you know with um two women of color headlining wrestlemania this year this brought uh, ethel johnson's yeah. name back into the uh into the public consciousness didn't it but obviously you know it wasn't yeah. quite how her family wanted it to be to be showcased was it yeah so ethel um, was inducted into the um, the WWE uh, Hall of Fame, which is, I'm glad she was. I'm glad she was finally recognized. Mm. However, the WWE did not contact the family ahead of time, didn't contact them even to say, hey, do you have any photos or memorabilia of Ethel that we could, um, you know, use when we make this announcement? Just, you know, just out of courtesy to give them a heads up. And it's not difficult to track down the family because first of all, I'm all over social media. So if you wanted to mm. get in touch with Ethel's family, all you'd have to do is contact me. If you didn't want to necessarily go through me, you could um, contact the Ohio History Connection, a history organization here in Ohio that had a huge exhibit about um, sports that originated in Ohio, and they included women's wrestling in it. So they could have easily contacted the Ohio um, History Connection. and. So when they made the announcement, they used they used one correct photo of Ethel, and then they the WWE did, and then they used a photo of Ethel's sister Babs passing that off as Ethel's as Ethel. I don't think they knew that it wasn't Ethel; they thought it was Ethel. Then they used footage of Sandy Parker, an Afro Canadian wrestler. They didn't even use current they didn't use correct footage of Ethel. So, you know, I'm a journalist. It doesn't take that much to do fact checking. 
I don't say the WWE did this with any kind of, you know, ill wow. intentions. I don't think they set out to like, you know, misrepresent Ethel. But once somebody brings an error to your attention, and it wasn't me who brought it to their attention, it was the family and said, hey, we're very offended by this. Can you correct it? And to my knowledge, the WWE said they were going to correct it. And I, I still to this day don't know if they ever issued any kind of correction or whatever. So yeah, it, it's great that she was recognized, but yeah, it was kind of like, you know, raining on the parade when it was like <laughs> misrepresented with the wrong photo and the wrong footage. Yeah, exactly. You can you could chalk the uh, original thing off as just a you know a rookie mistake, but obviously once it yeah once that's been brought to their attention, that's just um, offensive, isn't it? You know, once they don't actually correct it and just go, oh well, it's out there now. We're just going to leave it as it is. Yeah, because I couldn't get away with that. I couldn't, as an indie filmmaker, say, mm. oh, well, thanks for bringing that to my attention, but, you know, I'm just going to leave that incorrect footage, you know, in the movie. And, you know, the fact that it was, a, you know, the wrong photo, oh, well, you know, just be glad that you were in the movie. I mean, that would be extremely mm. arrogant and rude on my part. So, yeah, exactly. yeah, it is what it is. I think, yeah, I think rude and arrogant, you summed it up perfectly. But, um. As far as um, these women's legacy goes, obviously, I'm hoping since your documentary came out, you know, there's more of a conversation about them. And obviously, you know, I would have never heard about these people if it wasn't for your documentary. So obviously, thank you for putting that together. What do you think the legacy will be? Do you think it grows as more people learn about them, you know, in, in years to come? Yeah, yeah, they were their legacy will definitely grow. Uh, they are definite trailblazers. I mean, even though, like I said, a lot of people look down on wrestling as a lowbrow sport and think because it's choreographed that it's illegitimate. But the analogy I always make is, would you tell a ballerina who trained and trained and trained for hours and has been, you know, taking ballet classes since she was in elementary school, would you tell her you're not a real dancer because the dances you do are choreographed? You don't just get out there and freestyle. Of course you wouldn't. You would say ballerinas are very extremely disciplined and, um, you know, more so than most people are. So I would say that they're women like Ethel and her sisters really paved the way for modern day athletes. And even though women who've came after them may not be aware of their story, there'd be no um, Sasha Banks without Ethel Johnson. There'd be no Venus and Serena because Ethel and her sisters and, and their peers were the ones who broke down the, they shattered the glass ceiling and, and went to those areas where women and black women were not supposed to be. They really kicked the door open. And one of my, um, one of my missions that I hope to accomplish is getting more, first of all, local recognition for the women, like um, campaigning city council to either have a street named after Ethel or, or her sisters or just a statue. There's a local African American arts organization named uh, named after Martin Luther King. Maybe a statue of Ethel, or a you know just a bust inside the building. Or there's a mural in in uh, on the uh, one of the predominantly uh, African American areas of town. Um, a mural depicting famous African or well known African Americans from the city. I would love to at least see Ethel's image added to that mural. Uh, I'd love to see Ethel inducted into the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame. I'd, I'd love to see, um, you know, them. one of them or all of the sisters, someone representing that era of Black women in, in women's wrestling inducted into some kind of National Women's Hall of Fame or National mm. Sports Hall of Fame. I just think there's there's way more recognition beyond this documentary 
that these women are due. And it's going to take someone, I don't know if it's going to end up being me or some other advocate or group of ad advocates, because that kind of um, work takes a lot of persistence. Um, it involves emailing and calling uh, politicians and, you know, being politely persistent. You know, you can't turn yourself into a nuisance, obviously, because they'll block you, but you you have yeah. to be very aggressive and persistent. And so that's that's one of the things I I hope to continue to work on and, and hopefully make some progress on. No, oh, definitely. That'd be amazing if you could make it at least sort of 5% of that happen just so they can get some uh, recognition in, of some kind. But yeah. in terms of their reactions to the documentary, I'm assuming um, you had a chance to, to, to screen it for them. Was, were you getting the live reactions or did you send them a, a screener copy? Oh, no. I mean, you don't send 70-year-old <laughs> women a screener, <laughs> a screener copy and say, here's your VHS tape or here's your DVD. Let me know what you think. So I had a screening for the, the women and their families back in September of 2012 at a historic African-American theater here in Columbus named the Lincoln Theater. Um, you know, it's a very historic theater where like Cab Calloway and Sammy Davis Jr. and Ella Fitzgerald and a lot of, you know, well-known African-Americans uh, have performed over the decades. So we had a private screening for the women and their family. And they were just, the women were just, and their families were just so, so, so supportive. They were just, you know, saying thank you for documenting, doc documenting our story. And I, you know, I, I uh, af after the screening, I called Ethel and Ramona on stage and, you know, their families gave them a standing ovation. Of course, you know, of course, what else would their family do? But mm. so it was really, um, that is one of the most memorable times of this whole journey is getting to see their reaction. And um, they they continue, well, Ramona is still alive and I, I stay in touch with her and her daughter. They continue to just be so gracious and so sweet. And one of the things that's a little bit awkward is every now and then someone will contact me and say, hey, I'm trying to you know, research women's wrestling for a script I'm writing. Can you put me in touch with Ramona? Or I'm working on you know some article or something. Can you know, can you put me in touch with Ethel's family? And I try not to bug them because I don't want it to be like, okay, this documentary is, you know, opened up Pandora's box and I'll never, <laughs> I'll never have yeah. privacy. <laughs> you end up being the manager or their agent, would you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but I, but I try to kind of, you know, be selective about what I, you know, what I contact them about when, when people make requests for their, for, for their time. Mm, definitely. Um, so in terms of you did mention, you know, maybe, you know, a sequel, is that something that you've been looking into or something you're working on or, or a more broader look into, um, into wrestling or would it be more like um, um, still more info about um, the women you followed in this one? Yeah, once again, you know, a sequel is something that I didn't necessarily think of when I was making the, uh, the original documentary, but just because I've had so many people contact me um, whether it was, you know, Kathleen Wembley, one of Ethel's peers, or, um, you know, the, the sons and daughters of other wrestlers who were uh, peers of, of Ethel and her sisters who said, you know, my mom has a really interesting story as well. I'd love to tell my mom's story and talk about my experience, you know, growing up with my mom as a wrestler. So these, once again, these stories have been kind of falling into my lap. And I launched um, a podcast to kind of promote the documentary yes. earlier this year. And I was hoping to kind of interview some of the um, people who contacted me for the podcast. And then I just sort of realized a podcast is is sort of like minimizing 
their stories. And so I would like, even if it was just a short form, you know, maybe a 20 or 30 minute uh, follow-up documentary, just to, because with any story, there are chapters and you can only tell, you can only include so many chapters in one, you know, 90 minute film. So there's there's layers and layers and, and many chapters. There's, in fact, there's women who weren't even in the, um, in Billy Wolf's um, organization, women like Sweet Georgia Brown, the um, Vice News series, Dark Side of the Ring, did a whole episode about Sweet Georgia Brown and how she was managed by the fa fabulous moolah after fabulous, the fabulous moolah became a wrestling promoter herself. And they sort of imply, they, they didn't imply it, they outright stated that fab fabulous moolah was pimping out women like Sweet Georgia Brown and they'd come home from a wrestling trip pregnant. And the women I interviewed, they didn't mention anything like that. Nothing untoward as, as um, you know, deceitful as Billy Wolf could be. I never heard any stories like that, that he was, you know, running some kind of like underground prostitution ring. So mm. there are layers, some layers I don't want to get into like that. No. I don't want to <laughs> do a documentary about human trafficking, but there, yeah. there, there are definitely many other layers to the story. Oh, definitely. Um, outside of that, um, is there anything else that you're working on? You mentioned at the top of the show that, um, sorry, the top of your segment that you were, uh -huh. you know, you're a writer and a journalist. Yeah. So I actually filmed a fictional film, my first like full length fictional film based on a, you know, just an idea that just sprung out of my head. It's called Things Are Tough All Over. Uh, it's about a black family struggling through the Great Recession of 2008. And it I filmed it in the summer of 2019, and I, I'm still working on post-production because I've been so busy with uh, promoting the documentary, but it, it had this very strange parallel to the um, to the pandemic because the, both parents get laid off and they end up having to um, take their kids out of school because they can't afford private school tuition anymore, and they end up um, having their kids go to online school. So for most of the, the movie, the parents are home all day driving each other crazy while they're trying to help their kids with online school. And it was just this very, very strange that I that I filmed this right before the pandemic happened. Um, and and I came to find out there was another movie called Things Are Tough All Over, which was a Cheech and Chong movie of all things. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, that's so that's my next big project uh, is is finishing up and releasing Things Are Tough All Over. And then I actually would like to um, make a documentary and write a book about my experience growing up in an interracial family. I'm African-American, both my both my parents are black, but both my parents, uh, after they split up, ended up marrying white people, and I have four biracial siblings. So uh, I would like to make a documentary and write a, write a memoir about my experience and sort of interview other people who grew up in interracial families like Halle Berry, who's from Cleveland. She's biracial. Mm. One of the one of my favorite movies of, of all time is Flashdance. I'd love to interview Jennifer Beals, the star of that movie. Um, there's a journalist named Thomas Chatterton Williams, who's biracial, who's he's American, but he lives in Paris now. Um, I'd love to interview one of my idols growing up was uh, Prince and you know, any, anyone associated with Prince. So I'm a huge Sheila E fan. Sheila E is Afro-Latino, her father's Mexican and her mother's uh, black, uh, and her family has French Creole heritage like mine. I'd love to, you know, interview her about her experience growing up, you know, not feeling Mexican enough, but not feeling black enough. So that's that's the, the next uh, project in the pipeline. 
How do you know who would be a good person? I know she's talked a lot about her experiences uh, with Prince. I think it was when he was doing Diamonds and Pearls and she was uh, either Diamond or Pearl. You know, when they were doing most of the media for him. With yeah. Robbie LaMorta, she'd be brilliant to talk about. Um, yeah, if you were ever to do, you know, anything, um, you know, surrounding Prince. Yeah, and you know, are you familiar with Anna Fantastic? I am not, I'm afraid. Yeah, Anna Fantastic is a... Um, British woman. Her real name is Anna Garcia, I believe. And she's very exotic looking. I don't know if she's Latina, but um, mm. I didn't I didn't know about her either. I stumbled on um, an interview where she was talking about how she dated Prince when she was 18 and Prince was 32. And that I mean, I mean there are very few things that could make me, quote unquote, cancel Prince. But when I heard that, I was that mm. just made me cringe. It was like it, he's you know, he was a he was, a, you know, a very notorious playboy. But she she emphasized that he was a perfect perfect gentleman until she turned 18 and it was a totally consensual relationship but i mean that and she said she met him like at one of his concerts at wembley stadium uh she she somehow talked her way backstage and of course if mm. you're a pretty girl prince was gonna you know mm. <laughs> he was gonna let you backstage yeah. but uh yeah she'd be an interesting person to talk to as well no definitely definitely sounds like um you've got a lot of projects in the pipeline and, and some interesting takes on things and you know interesting and, and different things so um is there any other uh, things you'd like to plug or where people can actually watch uh, the brilliant uh, lady wrestlers documentary yeah so it's available on amazon prime and as far as i know it's available in the uk as well as the united states i believe those are the two territories that it's available in and then i also have a youtube channel under my own name where i have every episode of the podcast because I, I, a lot of the podcasts were um, like Zoom interviews, so you can like mm. see me talking to like, for example, the late the latest episode is me talking to wrestler Trisha Dora about like her training reg routine, and there's also different videos about the the history of some of these women. Um, so the YouTube channel, and then if if I didn't have enough, if I haven't plugged enough projects, I also have a fiction series called a print fiction series called the Chloe Chronicles about a a multi multiracial woman's um, adventures in the uh, entertainment industry. I'm going to, I actually released the novel back in 2012 and I'm going to be re-releasing it as a series of like four books uh, hmm. later this year. Wow, brilliant. Uh, Chris, you have opened my eyes not only with the documentary, but it's been absolutely fascinating to listen to you. And I'm looking in the comments and a lot of people agreeing with me saying what a brilliant guest you've been and just how fascinating, um, you know, not only the documentary is, but also, you know, Brilliant historian, you've obviously got a lot of knowledge and, and just thank you for coming on, helping us uh, raise money for the charity and just uh, being a brilliant interview. Oh, well, thank you. It's my honor and it's it's a great cause. The, the Children's Heart Surgery Fund, I 